You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you from Montecito, California. And today is going to be a little wild because I, uh, well, I have to tell you. So basically what happened was I had this uh, Pfizer vaccine. Uh, you know, I had COVID, but uh, still got vaccinated. Uh, about two weeks ago, and about a week and a half into it, I just started feeling really kind of uh, down and kind of sick. And the next thing you know, I was like down having rigors, chills, myalgias, and it just felt like I had COVID again. And it seemed weird because it was like two weeks out. You know, it wasn't the day of or the day after like most people. And next thing you know, I'm in bed, have fever, have up 103, all this stuff. And I have figure out after like a couple days that I have, of all things, strep throat. Strep throat. I'm 47 years old. I haven't had strep throat in like at least, what, I don't know, 30 years. And uh, certainly not around uh, anybody with strep throat. Uh, my kids don't have strep throat. And it hit me like a Mack truck. It's not like the old strep throat where you're like, oh, my throat hurts a little and there's some weird stuff on there and you get treated because you don't want to end up with a heart disease. This one really just debilitated me. So anyway, kind of weird thing. But uh, I will say that uh, another th- weird thing was that my former wife, Olivia, so she she had uh, she had the Pfizer vaccine, and two weeks later developed shingles. So anyway, it's an N of two. But one thing that I th- I'm starting to wonder is is there some sort of immune dip? couple weeks out from the vaccination. I'm not saying not to get it, but uh, just beware because now I looked it up and it looks like at least in some people without immune disease, uh, it looks like there was some cases of shingles a couple weeks out. Now, Olivia doesn't have autoimmune disease that she knows about. And then I talked to some friends in Chicago and they had some cases of shingles out there. So it may be one of those things that because we haven't had much time and much experience with this that we haven't discovered, but it does seem like uh, anecdotally uh, that there may be some kind of an immune dip response in some people. I mean, I don't know why else I would get strep throat and get debilitated by it like two weeks later. But anyway, who knows? I don't want to scare anybody from getting the vaccine. I still think it's better than dying of COVID or something like that. But just be aware, you may want to take it easy a little bit and go up on your vitamin C and all that stuff. So today's going to be a wild show, I say, because normally I do actually spend a fair amount of time, even when I'm doing Ask Buck shows, it may seem that I'm answering from the hip, but you, you know, most of the time I spend quite a bit of time looking at your questions ahead of time and thinking about it and writing stuff down. Today, we're going to go a little rodeo here. Uh, just uh, just going to look at your questions and answer them as they come up, and you'll get me from a raw throat to you'll have a raw, a raw, uh, raw answers. So anyway, we will uh, start this whole program when we come back right after these messages. Welcome back to the show, everyone. And let's just go ahead and get started. The first one I'm going to do here is a question that was sent in. Yes, Lewis asked, what type of life insurance is used in wealth formula banking? Is it whole indexed variable white life insurance company? I am 68. Is it worthwhile at my age? There's a five-year vesting period, correct? 
Is there any documentation you can point me to? So there's all these questions. Well, first, I would highly recommend, Louis, that you go to wealthformulabanking.com. Yeah, there's a couple of webinars there that are very helpful, and I think it'll be very clear because it seems like this is all kind of jumbled here. I, I think you've got uh, Wealth Formula Banking and Velocity Plus all kind of jumbled up together. But anyway, I, I forwarded this question over to our friend uh, Rod Zabriskie, uh, Wealth Formula Banking, and uh, he recorded this message. So let me see what he's got here. Hi, everyone. This is Rod Zabriskie. Uh, Buck asked me to cover this thing. And maybe I'll just real quickly describe what that is if, if there are any listeners who are not already familiar with it. Uh, it's a strategy that we use to enhance active cash flow investing. So typically when we bump into people who are active investors, they use a regular bank account, savings account, money market account as the what we call the opportunity fund, the place where they build up the funds and they take that money, go and invest it, use it to create some cash flow. They take that cash flow, funnel it back into the savings account, go back out and do it again, right? This whole concept of velocity. What we're doing with Wealth Formula Banking is we're just, we have a much better vehicle for that opportunity fund. We're using a strategically designed life insurance policy to uh, use as that vehicle. And it gets us three things. Number one, we're getting some growth, whereas we get little to nothing in, inside of the savings account. Secondly, that growth is tax-free. And then third, there are some additional efficiencies that are in the flow of that money. And if you want to learn more, uh, go check us out at wealthformulabanking.com, uh, where you can uh, get a webinar there. And, and then if you want to talk with us and, and you know learn a little more after that, then we have a form. Uh, okay, with that as a, as a background, let's get into this question from Lewis. And first off, he asks, what type of life insurance is used in wealth formula banking, whole, indexed, or variable? So real quickly, cash value life insurance uh, comes in a few different forms. Uh, if it's very familiar with the whole idea is that the inside of the account, there's what we call a cash value. And so it has uh, an underlying account value that is independent of the insurance itself. And so really the heart of, of Lewis's question here is how is the growth happening inside of the account? And so real quickly with whole life, we have a guaranteed interest rate plus a dividend. That's how it grows. In an indexed universal life policy, the interest that we're earning is based off of what's happening inside of a market index. It's not invested in that index. It's just using that as a measuring stick to determine how much interest you earn each, each year. And so uh, if the index goes up in value, we capture the growth up to a certain cap in the year where the index loses value. We don't participate in the losses. We just don't earn any interest in that year. Okay, so that's how the indexed one works. And then on the variable, on this one, it actually is invested in the market, the equivalent of mutual funds inside of the insurance policy. And uh, and then the value of the underlying account, the cash value, will fluctuate based on the ups and downs, the volatility of whatever market-based securities that those funds are invested in. So, okay, that's, so those are the three. Now, back to the question, with Wealth Formula Banking, we recommend whole life. And it's not because that's the only kind that can be used. Uh, but if you if you think about the whole strategy itself, the idea is that we are using it to enhance cash. In other words, people who are investing in real estate or businesses or, or ATM funds, a lot, of, a lot of different things, cash flow investments. And what this provides for us is a consistent, steady growth that's happening inside of the account. 
And because whole life has just a lot of guarantees associated with it, and even the portion of that dividend that's not guaranteed, the companies are just so consistent at paying a dividend. So it just creates a, a very consistent underlying growth that happens while we're also out there creating value in these other places, which tend to be to, to carry a little more risk with them. So while we're, we're taking all that risk in the investments themselves, we like the idea that we have a very secure, consistent growth generation happening inside of these policies in the background. Okay, so then the next question Lewis asks is, what life insurance company do we use? Okay, so we have relationships with lots of companies. Um, basically, what we want to do with Wealth Formula Banking specifically is we want a mutual life insurance company because that means they pay a dividend. We want them to have been around a long time, have be, be consistent paying that dividend, and just be A-rated, like very, very financially secure. And so there are about 10 or 12 companies that fit those that criteria. And then what we do is we just compare them all, say, okay, which company, which product is turning my money into the most cash value that I can then loan against and go and invest? And so that, that's what we're going to do. We're going to pick the company that, that gives you that. So uh, again, it's not an individual company, uh, but it's just, we're just continually keeping up on what's happening with all the different companies. So the next question, I am 68. Is it worthwhile at my age? And I would say uh, age by itself is not a, a factor that would kick you out, right? Uh, it has more to do with the investing that you are doing, how long you're planning to do it. And then we can plug this in, look at some numbers and see if it fits. So I wouldn't say for a 68-year-old or, or really any, a person of any specific age that that by itself would disqualify you from participating in wealth formula banking. Okay, the next question says there is a five-year vesting period, correct? I'm not sure exactly what what you mean by vesting period, but I'll come at it from a couple of different if, if the question is, do I have to wait five years of putting money into the policy before I can start accessing it to use in investing, then the answer is no. Depending on the specific company that we're using determines how long I'd have to wait. But certainly within a year, you can be at, start accessing the, the funds and, and be using them for your investing. So uh, some companies are even, even you know a shorter time frame than that. So, uh, so no, you don't have to wait the five years if that's your question. Uh, if the question is, do I have to commit to funding the policy for five mm -hmm. years, then even that, we, we can get a policy to be self-sustaining within about three or four years. And so depending on you know how much a person is putting in and, and a few other factors, from a, just a pure funding standpoint, how long do I have to plan on putting money into it? That's relatively short, three or four years. When you compare that to what a lot of people assume, because it's life insurance, a lot of people assume you have to just keep putting money in forever. And, and so that wouldn't be the case. So so it could be even shorter than five years uh, from a funding standpoint. And then final question, is there any other documentation you can point me to? Well, like I said a little bit ago, I would say start with uh, the webinar that we have at wealthformulabanking.com. And then if that gives you a good feel and, and you feel like it's something worth looking into a little more, then get in touch with us and and what we can do is have an initial conversation, understand your situation a little bit better, and then point you toward uh, some additional resources that can help you learn the strategy a little bit more and, and really not just learn it so you can make a decision on whether it makes sense for, for you to, to you know, pull the trigger or not. Uh, but really our whole goal with this education is to put people in a position where they can really make use of it and and. Be, have it become a part of the decision-making process as they're evaluating 
investments and as they're flowing the money in and out of those investments that this just becomes a, a core piece of that that's our whole goal and from a, an education standpoint on that so thank you for your question lewis well uh thank you rod for all those answers and certainly uh giving me a little br- bit of a break here with my voice but lots of detail there is certainly something to check out i think uh we always i uh, use recommendation in a very non financial advice or way, but uh, recommended at least making sure that you understand uh, what these products are is, is a key, I think, uh, is a foundation for investing, especially in, in cash flowing uh, real assets. So check out uh, wealthformulabanking.com. Now, before I uh, move on to the next question, a couple things that just came to mind, again, stream of consciousness this week. I had so many uh, questions about uh, following up on last week's podcast interview with Mance Harmon. And I just, uh, first, the, the most common one was, well, where, where can I buy it? So right now, HBAR, which is the native coin, is not available on Coinbase, which is, you know, what the usual easy way to get uh, cryptocurrency is. And in that sense, it's actually an opportunity because if it was on Coinbase, and which it will be eventually, the price will be higher because it becomes much more accessible to a lot more people. Right now, I mean, from my understanding, there's a number of other places to get it. The place that I've been buying and watching, you know, to buy more, frankly, has been through Bittrex, B-I-T-T-R-E-X. If you have a Coinbase account, you can, you know, move your stablecoin or your Ethereum or Bitcoin, whatever you want to use, you can just move it to, over to Bittrex and buy HBAR there. You can also earn money directly to Bitrix. I think sometimes that's a little bit harder, but uh, that's cer- certainly an option as well. I still think that I'm looking at those prices and, um, you know, last over the last week, there was a significant blow to the crypto markets in general because of uh, these comments from Elon Musk. Elon's a character, man. I'll tell you, he's, you know, totally gets behind Bitcoin and then, you know, Tesla accepts Bitcoin for payment and all this stuff. Uh, And then, of course, he does a total 180 there and realizes that there's actually a lot of energy consumption with Bitcoin and then he can no longer support it. Uh, So Bitcoin actually took a hit from that. You can see how volatile this market is when you have one guy who seems to be moving it by so much. But that's what happened. Drove it down. But what happened in the interim was actually that it, it, even though HBAR initially went down with everything else, it popped right back up and actually um, stabilized higher, in part because HBAR is one of the quote-unquote green cryptocurrencies and green protocols. Uh, it doesn't really consume much of energy uh, at all. And so uh, there is a relationship uh, between HBAR, uh, Hedera Hashgraph, uh, and Google. Google is on the governing council of Hedera Hashcraft, Hedera uh, has been involved with the Google Cloud. And uh, the Google Cloud just made some kind of a deal with SpaceX, which is, of course, Elon's company, the one that flies to the moon and all. And so I think some people were probably speculating that maybe Elon would be looking into HBAR. Who knows? Here's my take on it. I don't think that you ought to look at this as a short-term investment. I'm not. Even though it's cryptocurrency, here's the thing. You look at like Bitcoin and Ethereum. I mean, they've been around for a while, right? 
Uh, and uh, Bitcoin's been around since 2009 or something. It's taken a while for this thing to really take off. And Ethereum's been around for a long time too now. And they're really sort of, you know, blockchain 1.0, really established. And they've got these massive uh, market capitalization. I think what you, at least the way that I think about this, is that there's a there's going to be this surge of 2.0 coins and this next generation blockchain or in the case of uh you know Hedera not being a blockchain just distributed ledger technology which is so important in the way technology is headed in general and so if you look at those market capitalizations that's to me i look at those very closely because logically as this technology progresses there's just no way okay let's just take bitcoin out of the picture altogether Let's, because it's a different animal. But Ethereum, for example, to me, it's a little clunky. It's a little clunky. And I think it's, you know, first of the game and people are just looking at it as this, you know, it's, it's the king right now of that sort of uh, smart contract platform. But, you know, there is so many second generation protocols out there that are superior technology wise. Uh, HBAR, of course, being one of them, in my view. Also Polkadot. And of course, like Mance Harmon said, they do different things. But they're all better and faster than Ethereum right now. Uh, another one that we talked about in our group before it was released, which I was very I'm lucky to get on the pre-sale in 2017, was um, Definity, also known as the Internet Computer. Uh, that uh, a native coin, it's ICP, literally launched on Coinbase. It was the biggest launch uh ever came into the top 10 market cap of cryptocurrency in J1. This was this is another phenomenal project. And my sense is that what's going to happen over time, if you stop looking at these markets like we're used to in cryptocurrency, like one month at a time, is that over time, you're going to have these second generation ones, you know, ha- uh, gaining massive market cap. Now, I'm not saying I that I know for sure, you know, which which of these new uh, second generation protocols is going to end up having a hundred billion plus um, market cap. I mean, Definity is going to get there for sure, in my opinion. I mean, it's already like number eight market cap a day. It was the day one or two. But if you look at HBAR, it has a two billion dollar market cap right now, can get to a hundred. That's a 50x multiple on the price right now, which is only, you know, about 32 cents as of this recording. Do the math there. That's an enormous potential return. So I think it's a, a huge asymmetric risk play. But the thing about this company is that it's it's a real company, right? And so I do encourage you to look at it. They don't spend a lot of time like out there marketing, but Quietly, if you look at the number of things that they're doing, they're working with NASA. They're actually being used uh, HBAR as the protocol track the International Space Station. I mean, this is like one of the few projects that's actually really doing something as opposed to, you know, just being a bunch of hype. So if you're willing to hold something like you should, frankly, like an investment, right, in real estate, we just assume five years. We don't sit there and watch it month to month. So in my opinion, if you're looking at this as a five-year hold, this is a really great opportunity. And, uh, you know, who knows? It's not investment advice. I just look at it, but um, I'm excited about it. So check it out. All right. Well, let's see. Let's move on to the next question. 
from Ethan. Uh, he says, I want to thank you for all the great opportunities to provide your credit investors. My question is regarding negative uh, K-1s for investments within a qualified fund, i.e. solo 401k. How can they be utilized and when? Thanks again for all you do. They, they can't really, Ethan, can't really do anything. That's the disadvantage of using a qualified funds for investing in anything that actually has a tax advantage because you've already taken the tax advantage by using your your tax shelter, your solo 401k. So, you know, even listen, if you have capital outside of your qualified funds, you're probably better off using those for these types of things. Now, does that mean that you shouldn't invest in real estate with your solo 401k? No, I don't think that's true. I know I've heard people say that before. I think the big difference is that uh, if you're looking at investing using a solo 401k or self-direct IRA or whatever, at that point, you don't pay attention to the tax benefits. You have to look straight up at the numbers. uh, And the numbers are still usually far more compelling in real estate than they are with other opportunities. So so anyway, yeah, that's basically it. But unfortunately, um, you know, I mean, I'm not a tax professional, but I don't know of and I've never heard of anything that you can do uh, to utilize uh, K-1 losses from depreciation within the confines of a qualified uh, plan. All right, next question after that is from Greg. Greg is asking, Buck, thank you for the financial education opportunities that you have made available to all of us. I just looked at my K-1s for last year. By not having to pay taxes, the government contributed 30% to my investments. That speeds up investing. Please help me understand how recapture works. If WWC, meaning Western Wealth Capital, sells the property before five years, I think I have to recapture some of the K-1 loss, correct? Okay, so Greg, let's revisit this concept called the golden hamster wheel, which we've been using uh, and we've talked about on on, uh, some uh, past Ask Buck shows. And you may want to listen to them too. I might explain them better in the other ones. But basically, here's the deal, right? Yes, you do get the depreciation. The depreciation is not permanent. There is a recapture. But first, let's look at it on the surface, what recapture looks like. So if you're able to use money that would otherwise be taxed at ordinary income, and you were able to save that going in, by getting the depreciation and the deduction at ordinary income rates, then that's awesome because guess what? Recapture comes out only at 25%. So there is a uh, arbitrage in the tax rate right off the bat that saves you. You know, it's almost like you would have been taxed at you know 40%, but instead you're being taxed at 25% at recapture. So there's that benefit. But There is also this other benefit we've uh, called the golden hamster wheel, which is essentially that, you know, people who are investing in these opportunities are typically investing in multiple ones, right? So you are continuously, you know, generating more and more and more losses. And oftentimes you're not using all those losses. So what happens is sometimes when you have a divestment, say you have a divestment and you're supposed to be paying recapture, what you see is that the recapture and the capital gains is being offset by some of those losses from the other investments that have not been used. And that's why it's like a hamster wheel, a golden hamster wheel. 
Hopefully that makes sense. And I'll just add that I am not a tax professional and that is not tax or legal advice, as I always do to cover my backside. Anyway, uh, thanks for the question there. All right, next question from Brent. Brent uh, says, hi, Buck. It's Brent Altman here, writing from Israel. With record low interest rates, so many large players are diving into the multifamily real estate space these days. We're seeing prices rise and cap rates compress. Is there a point where purchasing these multifamily assets stops making sense? Are we at that point yet? And if not, what indicators are you looking at to determine it's time to invest elsewhere? I listen to tons of podcasts, but as ever, yours is the only one that actually results in me generating wealth. I truly appreciate it. Well, that was really nice, uh, Brent. I, I'm glad we're able to generate you some wealth. That's uh, good to hear. Well, Brent, I think that's a really good question. I just think the thing that you need to think about is this, is I think that there is a lot of danger in trying to time the markets. And I think there's no better way to explain that than to say, listen, there are some seriously high profile smart syndicators that have been pretty much inactive for the past five years. Um, thinking that the market was too hot, it couldn't possibly you know, get hotter. And uh, guess what? In the last five years, companies like Western Wealth Capital and and others who continue to go made money hand over fist. And even a year and a half ago, when we had a meeting, I remember, uh, and I think it was in, in Arizona, I remember Dave Steele talking about how he thought interest rates were going to go down even further because compared to the rest of the world, our interest rates are relatively high. And that was a bold statement. And of course, Dave, uh, as smart as he is, couldn't have predicted COVID, but what he said actually came true. So interest rates even went lower. And that drove cap rates down even more. It drove interest rates down even more. And of course, uh, cap rates follow that. So I think the challenge is predicting the future. You know, we may just be in a new type of economy where, you know, we may have decades of like super, super low interest rates. Who knows? I don't know that. I don't think you know that. So I think the best thing that we can continue to do is, is, is sort of volume average into these markets. I mean, don't expect that every time you invest that you're going to hit a home run. Things that we invested in a couple years ago that we're going to probably divest in within a year or two are, are probably going to be massive home runs, but I don't think anybody would have, have predicted that necessarily uh, given where the markets were. Now, I also think that things are going to get a lot hotter from where we are now. So I think it would be a in my opinion, a mistake to stop investing right now. There will be back and forth. There will be recessions. There will be setbacks in the economy, et cetera. But I think that what we're seeing right now is six, you know, what did we see in the first quarter? 6% growth in GDP. Things are super hot. They're only going to get hotter once this pandemic uh, stuff goes away and people are traveling and spending and all that. So to your question of when do you stop? For me, what I'm looking at really is, again, sort of the more macroeconomic picture. And I think what I like to think about is sort of the uh, ITR economics uh, model, where there's a pretty good, if you go back and listen to some of those episodes, they talk about how the, the 20s are going to roar, and they've been right so far about that, and they're roaring, right? And after COVID, this is going to be the roaring 20s. Next three years, four years, whatever, I think are just going to fly. 
And then they talk about a depression happening in around the uh, 2030s. So I'm paying a lot of attention to that large macro shift. And does that mean that, you know, 2027 to 2028, we, we stop buying? I don't know the answer to that yet, but that I think that right now I would continue to, you know, buy, given the where we are uh, from a macroeconomic standpoint, keeping an eye out on to the late 2020s and not trying to predict, you know, dips, smaller dips in the economy and setbacks along the way. I think that, you know, you have to remember too that, uh, that, yeah, you know, you've got very low interest, you've got cap rates that are compressed, but that's really being driven by uh, the fact that the interest rates are so low. And so it's, again, it's all based on a big macroeconomic picture. So I think that's what you have to focus on. I don't think you can just look at the real estate market in a bubble. And I think that's what real estate uh, syndicators who stopped buying five years ago have done. They just look at it and say, well, we've, we've gotten really hot and we can't get any hotter, so we're going to stop. Uh, you have to look at what's going on in the larger macro picture and make some decisions based on that. And I think if you continue to, you know, volume average in, even if there are dips, you know, then you'll, you should be just fine. That's my opinion. And when it's time to stop, if I feel like we need to stop, at least in our investor club, we will do that. But I don't, I don't foresee that for the next several years. I don't know if that's a very good answer to your question. Uh, this is one that I probably would have given you a better answer if I wasn't uh, doing it by the seat of my uh, pants today. But all right, let's see. I think we have uh, time for one more here, maybe. Here's a nice bread and butter question from Eric Payne. Hi, Buck. Uh, my question is, it better to continue to invest as an individual limited partner myself or to set up and use an LLC investment company that is the go-between for these investments? I'm looking at asset protection and also potentially moving investments into a trust at a later date. What would you recommend to make it easier in the future? This is a very useful question uh, because we can review a couple of different things. First of all, is Eric uh, out of his mind for not using an LLC to in make his investments in the first place? No, he's not because as a limited partner, uh, he doesn't really have any liability from the building or whatever it is that he's investing in, right? So if it's a multifamily building, somebody slips and falls, well, they're not going to sue Eric. He's a limited partner. He has limited liability. That's why it's a limited liability company, and he, he is the limited part. So anyway, that's so that's why he doesn't need it. Now, however, as an individual, if he invests just as an individual, I don't know if I would recommend that either, Eric, because you're doing that. If you just want to invest as an individual, you should probably at least use uh, what is known as a living trust. And the reason for that is, is that uh, any of your investments, if they're in your own name and you die, uh, they will end up in probate, and your children and your heirs will not get access to that for months and months and months, and it'll cost a bunch of money. So if you uh, simply uh, have, say, like, you know, an Eric Payne Living Trust, uh, which is easy to establish for a couple grand from any estate planning attorney, has your own social security number, and you invest through that, that eliminates that problem altogether. So I think at the bare minimum, that's what you need to do. Now, the next thing, uh, the next level 
And again, remember, I am not an attorney or a CPA or anything like that. I'm just a guy who does a lot of this on my own. So I'm just giving my own opinions and what I do. So I'm going to tell you what I do and what a lot of people do. Because while, Eric, you don't have liability from the property itself, you are a doctor and you have a lot of personal liability and you drive a car and you have that kind of personal liability. If you, you know, hit somebody or something like that, you could get sued. And because when you're driving a car and you hit somebody, that liability is against Eric. And if your investments are all titled to Eric, well, they become a target for, for any sort of lawsuit and collection. So that's why a lot of people choose to use an LLC because in a, especially in a, in a state where there's good charging order protections uh, for LLCs, it's a very useful device to create a level of protection against you, know, you as an individual and your liability and your investments. So that's why a number of people in our group, including myself, use LLCs like a holding company in order to, you know, deploy capital or limited liability investments. Uh, And then, you know, that's also where you get your money back. And so it makes it kind of, you know, a little piggy bank for your investments. Now, uh, as for moving to a trust, this is also a very useful thing because what you do What you can do and what I've done in the past is you can have a holding company and say that initial holding company is owned by Eric Living Trust. Say it's owned by Eric uh, Living Trust and Eric is the sole member and Eric is the manager. What you can do at some point is just make it so that you can move that whole holding company and move the ownership over to a trust. So the sole member becomes the trust rather than Eric. And you're still the manager, but now it's in your trust. So it makes it really easy. So that's what a lot of people do. Uh, They end up having a manager-managed LLC holding company in a state where there's good charging order protections, such as Arizona uh, or Wyoming. I think Texas is good too, but I've, you know, I've never done a Texas LLC. I've always done Arizona or Wyoming. Mostly I've done Wyoming, but now I'm doing Arizona because there's a lot less stuff you have to do in Arizona to keep the LLC. And then uh, so you have a manager manage LLC in one of those states. And then, and then basically you have all the flexibility in the world. So hopefully, uh, hopefully that answers your question. I think it's a, it's a good move. One other follow-up question uh, that I had via email, and I won't, uh, privacy issues, um, say who it was because I don't know if he wanted me to bring his name up about this, but there was some question about, uh, somebody asked me a question about he was getting divorced and wanted to know what to do about the all these limited partnerships he'd invested through well, with the 50-50 split with his uh, future ex-wife. So unfortunately, I have some experience with this, but, you know, having that LLC with the investments and holding company actually made it really easy because, you know, instead of trying to create, you know, do a valuation of these things and spending 20, 30 grand or whatever, um, what we did in our case was there was a bunch of investments in a holding company and, uh, you know, we're friendly and we just said, okay, well, we'll just be 50, 50 partners on this. Uh, holding company will take it out of this trust and, you know, 
that money as it comes out, it's 50% mine, 50% yours. So it made it that easy for that purpose too. So anyway, that's uh, the little additional bonus for those of you going through any sort of divorce situation. Anyway, I think that's about it for questions today. Uh, let's take a break and uh, we'll be back uh, right after these messages. Welcome back to the show, everybody. I uh, hope you enjoyed it. And uh, I do apologize for the mess I am again. Uh, you probably thought, didn't wasn't he just sick with all this COVID nonsense just a couple months ago? Yes, I was. But yeah, I think I, you know, I think the vaccine kind of dipped me down a little bit and somehow I got sick again. But hopefully I made some kind of sense. And hopefully you were a little bit uh, smarter than you were when you than before you started uh, listening today. Uh, that's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Jaffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time.